introduced to several characters that come in and out of the spotlight. Uh, so far in chapter 6, it wasn't like that at all. It was primarily Jesus doing all the teaching and the speaking, and he was speaking primarily to his disciples the entire time. Um, but now, Jesus will almost seem like a secondary character today. He doesn't do much. He enters a city. He gets asked to go to somebody's house. He gets stopped, doesn't actually get to go there, etc., etc. So, um, and even the main event, which seems like is the main event of healing somebody, is not uh, really highlighted directly. So please follow along as I read the scripture for today. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly uh, with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of God. Amen. So again, several characters here presented to us, and, and we'll take a look closely, uh, and as we do, we'll see that each one of these characters will come with their own set of values. And as these characters interact with one another, their value systems will also be interacting with one another. Even in our interactions with people in our lives, much of our values might actually agree with one another, but oftentimes... What we value and how we value the things in our lives will clash, and it might take some more time and space for our values to be influenced by others and for us to do the same. So to share an example of this, there's a man that lives out the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. His name is Nelson Molina. He's a fellow proud New Yorker. Uh, his, and his story is that ever since he was a young boy, their family was too poor to be able to buy toys. And so what he did was he looked through other people's garbage to find toys that were decent, still in good condition. He would clean them and he would bring them back home. His family actually cherished these times and they called him their Santa Claus. And as a young boy, and even as a young boy, he saw worth in things others saw as worthless. He treasured what others saw as trash. And so when he became older, he actually worked for the New York City Department of Sanitation for 34 years and continued to do what he did as a child. He was picking up other people's garbage, and as he was doing that, he continued to collect items that he saw as valuable. And now that he's retired, he decided to display all of his collection with the public, and he opened a small museum called Treasures in the Trash. 
Uh, not now, but you know, feel free to check out his Instagram page uh, with that name. And you'll see what, what his gallery includes. It includes autographed books, antique dining utensils, artwork, photographs of people long ago, and many toys and other collectible items. And we would think that no one would be interested in going to a museum full of garbage. Because why would they come to see what is worthless trash? But, but as people have been visiting his museum, they begin to share his values. And they begin to see valuable treasures among the trash as well. So spiritually speaking, because of sin, we too are like spiritual trash. And I know that sounds a bit harsh to start a sermon. I'm not going to just pray and then leave, okay? Um, but that's how God's Word describes sinners like us. When we compare ourselves to a holy and perfect, righteous, powerful God, and while we should have been thrown out into the streets like trash because of our sin, our Lord Jesus Christ treasures us. He values us lowly sinners, loving us even to the point of death on the cross. This is the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is why he is worthy of our entire lives. So that's the one thing for today, to trust, this is the one thing for today, to trust in his word and submit to his authority, for our Lord Jesus Christ graciously loves the unworthy. We'll take uh, a look at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 in two parts, looking at two authorities presented in the text. First is an earthly authority who demonstrated his love in verses 1 through 5. Second, an extraordinary authority who deserves our faith in verses 6 through 10. Could you bow with me, uh, just your heads, uh, for one more time as we pray for the preaching of the word today? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, it is a, a joy and a privilege to be here, gathered with your people as we are just meeting on site again and, and we're learning again what it means to be the church gathered here in your name. And as we are here, we know you are here with us. In your name, we, uh, as we are gathered, we, we know you're here with us, and you want to teach us how, Lord, we can be faithful and fruitful disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, this won't be, today won't be, it, it will be a shame if we just leave this place with a list of things that we need to do. But rather, Lord, we desire that as we leave here, as we hear your word preached, that we'll be convinced of your love for us, your worthiness of our entire lives. And Lord, we know that might mean that you will expose our unworthiness, Lord, in order to do so. So help us prepare our hearts to be able to accept your words and hear your words of life so that we may respond in love, Respond to your love in our love for you. Respond to you with obedience, joyful obedience, willing obedience, even as we leave this place. So have your way in us. Holy Spirit, guide us at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's look at the first authority, an earthly authority who demonstrated his love. So Luke chapter 7, the setting changes to Capernaum, and our attention is directed to the centurion. And right away, we are introduced to two value systems. And there will be a contrast of these value systems. And this contrast will highlight the right way and the wrong way 
uh, how people should value other people. So let's take a look at the centurion and the right way to value people from this text. Uh, a centurion was a commanding officer of the Roman army. He was a man of significant political authority as well as significant social influence in the city that he was stationed at and that he was responsible for in the Roman Empire. And we learned that this particular centurion had a servant who was dying of sickness. It's a hopeless situation. It's a sad situation. And it's a harsh reality that we have too commonly faced during this ongoing pandemic. But the interesting detail here is that our attention is brought to how the centurion highly valued his servant. He highly valued his dying servant even though the servant was unable to do anything for him. Let me explain why this is important. So in the language of the Bible, this highly valued is a word that describes a state or a condition of worth, meaning that in the centurion's eyes, his servant was valuable, not his servant's abilities that were valuable. His servant was precious, not the work that his servant was doing is precious. So even though the servant was sick and no longer able to do the work that he was hired to do, he's just lying there on his deathbed, he was still highly valued. And the reality is, is that here is that it's, this is not a normal way of how the world operates. Instead, it is normal for people to be undervalued, especially those whose work is to serve us and we might not even realize it. For example, we don't often see people saying thank you to the cleaning service at the mall not realizing how difficult but how necessary their job is to clean up after people, especially in the bathrooms. And bathrooms get dirty really fast. We also don't, go out off, we don't, go, we don't often go out to greet the garbage collectors and appreciate their willingness to pick up after our garbage faithfully so that our neighborhood and our apartments don't smell and look disgusting. And even when they're working hard to serve us, they're not readily seen as valuable. It's actually more natural to think that they're in those service jobs because they're not valuable anywhere else. Not only that, it is rare for people to be valued apart from their works and abilities. If someone cannot bring any skills or any resources or even just hard work to the table, it is really difficult to consider them as valuable. And therefore, such people are easily replaceable in, in, in any context in our world, whether that's in a company, even in a family, in a school team assignment, even among Christians. We cannot but help, we cannot help but feel that the ones who cannot contribute anything, those who are not useful, honestly, are useless. And people might not say this out loud, but for sinners like you and me, I know we surely feel it. We might even be on the receiving end where we don't feel valued unless we live up to certain expectations, unless we meet various criteria. And I've been there, and it feels terrible. It feels terrible to not be valued apart from what I can do, apart from what I can give. Well, the centurion servant had no influence, no authority. Not only that, his sickness took away any ability that he had. And so functionally speaking, he was no longer useful for his master. 
But that didn't matter. The centurion still highly valued his servant apart from his works and ability. And this was how the centurion, an earthly, limited, and sinful person in authority, demonstrated his love. Although a limited love, but he demonstrated his love for someone in a lower status than he was. Isn't this the right way to value people? Anyone in the world would love to be valued like this. Especially in moments when we find ourselves limited, at our limits, at our capacity. When we find ourselves unable to perform to a certain standard. We talk about how one of the characteristics of love should be unconditional. How true love does not have conditions in order to be accepted and valued by someone else. So then if we want to be loved and valued this way, especially from those who are over us in positions of authority, in relationships of authority, Jesus simply says, do unto others as you would like them to do to yourself. Also, another reason why this is the right way to value people is because this is a glimpse of how our God values us. Scripture says God created people in his good pleasure. And on top of that, God created us in his own image, in his likeness, making each one of us a unique and special creation among all other creations in this world. Our value is greater than that of the sun, the moon, and the stars. These things are wonderful, but they're not as wonderful as each person God has brought into being. And every single person in the world is one of God's personal works of art that he created, that as he carefully crafted each person in their mother's womb, each one living by God's grace with God-given worth. So it's strange that somehow, out of all people, here is a non-Jewish centurion, a foreigner to the worship of the true God, somehow demonstrating how God loves us. Again, his love indeed is limited. But how he loved this servant was a glimpse of how God loves us. And so the question we have to ask is how much more then should we as people who claim to be of God, God's people, should strive to love and value others this way? And as you think about this question, we move on to verse 3. The centurion here had a hopeless problem on his hands, and every, but, but everything would change when he heard about Jesus. Jesus was healing all types of sicknesses in that city of Capernaum. Even in the synagogue that the centurion built, Jesus had casted out an unclean spirit from a demon-possessed man. And because of that, many reports about Jesus, about his authority, about his power, went out into every place. And so the centurion decided to seek out Jesus through the Jewish elders that he knew. And so now, in contrast to the centurion's value system, we are introduced to the Jewish elders in the wrong way of valuing people. These elders were the religious leaders of the Jewish people who studied the scriptures and taught the people how to live according to God's law. So in this way, elders also had a significant religious authority and significant social influence over their people. But it was generally not a positive influence as far as we know from scripture because they often looked down on people who they labeled as sinners. They didn't like sinners because sinners didn't follow all the religious rules that they should be following. 
The elders followed all the rules, and they were proud of their own work and ability to live out every letter of the law. And so they separated themselves from such people, which included non-Jewish Gentiles as well. So this is where the centurion story becomes more and more strange. The centurion, even though he was a Gentile, even though he was not Jewish, he had a significant relationship with the Jewish elders, a relationship where he, where he could even ask for a favor from them. And we learn that it's because the centurion actually built the synagogue in Capernaum. That was a place where Jewish people of that city could gather together to worship God. And so the Jewish elders decided to relay the request of the centurion to Jesus. So when they went to Jesus, saying, Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now the word for worth here that they use is slightly different from the word for worth that the centurion used. The worth that the Jewish elders are describing is a worth that deserves another worth. It's a worth that deserves to be matched by a worth of equal, if not greater, value. It's a merit-based worth. In other words, they are convincing Jesus. This centurion is valuable because of what he did for us. He built us our place of worship. And so that was a big deal, just like it would be a big deal today. If someone fully funded the building of a church or a mosque or a temple, that would be a big deal. It would be a great contribution to that people. So because they received such a great benefit, now here they are pleading earnestly, begging Jesus because they valued the centurion's merit and his works. And this is the wrong way to value people. It's wrong because their focus is not in the right place in this entire situation. It should be alarming to us that the Jewish elders are not talking about what they should be talking about. They're not talking about this dying servant. There's someone dying. Their concern should be for him. They should be desperate for the dying servant, not the centurion. They should be saying, Jesus, come on. You need to do this. There's someone dying. Just go and heal him like you've been healing every other person. He needs you now. He's on his deathbed. But they don't seem concerned with the dying servant at all. So what kind of value system is this? That even when someone is dying, people are more focused and concerned with the one who did good things for them. In other words, if there was no one to vouch for the life of this dying servant, this dying servant would die. And life would go on. So in contrast to the centurion highly valuing his servant, apart from his ability, Jewish elders valued the centurion because of his ability. Of his ability. So I think it's legitimate to question why the Jewish elders were even pleading earnestly in the first place. If they value people based on their works, seeing people with the merit-based worth, then maybe they thought their earnestness, their desperation, their desperation was not even for the centurion's benefit. Maybe they thought it was for their own benefit. Because if they did this great favor for the centurion and the servant could actually be healed, then the Jewish elders would deserve an even greater favor from the centurion. You got us a synagogue? Yeah, we'll get your servant healed. But now we deserve something else from you. It's like they're saying to him, to the centurion, you scratched our back, 
So now we'll scratch your back, but make sure you scratch our back again. And I'm sure many of us have felt this kind of tension in various relationships with other people. It's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling because our relationship should be based on unconditional love, valuing one another in our God-given worth. But it's not a good feeling when we value one another based on merit and works because that relationship will inevitably, inevitably become just a transactional relationship, not even a relationship. It becomes an accounting ledger, keeping a record of who owes you a favor and who you owe a favor in return. And so obviously, such relationships don't last long, even among people, and it will end in bitterness and frustration. This is why the Jewish elders here, they're missing out on a relationship with the centurion, on their friendship. They could so confidently argue to Jesus that the centurion loved them. And from the centurion's perspective, he probably did build their synagogue out of his love for them. But from the elders' perspective, they understood his love as their own benefit. And if love is misunderstood this way, as merit and works, as soon as the benefits end, the love ends, and the relationship will not be a relationship anymore. What if the centurion could not do them any more favors? The elders will not see his love. So here's a danger in our relationship with Jesus. Because the world operates on merit, we are tempted to bring this merit-based system into our relationship with him. This is a glimpse of how we bargain with Jesus. On one hand, there are times when we are bar our bargaining is a little bit more outward, obvious, and blatant. We earnestly plead, begging of Jesus, asking him to do something for us because we feel like we have done something right. Jesus, I gave to the church. Jesus, I served. Jesus, I sacrificed for you. And we somehow think we have become worthy enough for Jesus to now do a favor for us. Obviously, that's wrong because there's nothing we could ever do that could make us worthy enough for him. And so we might never say to Jesus, Jesus, look at me. Jesus, I'm worthy to have you do what I ask. We might not say this, but we have this posture in a more subtle way. It comes out when we feel like we're not receiving what we have asked for. As we have prayed for that very thing, like the Jewish elders, we pleaded earnestly, begging Jesus, grant us the very thing that we have been asking for again and again. You can fill in the blank with whatever that one thing is that you're so desperately longing for, whether it's a relationship or it's that certain job or position or for a certain status. These things might be okay to ask God in prayer, but what happens when days and weeks go by without our prayer being answered, without our requests being fulfilled? What if months and years go by? It will come to a point where we feel like God is not even listening. God doesn't even care. This is when this merit-based system starts to creep up in our hearts. We wonder, God, what's the point of trying to live for you? Why am I wasting my time at attending these gatherings? meetings for the church why should i keep giving why should i do try to do all that jesus tells you to tells us to do when you're not going to do anything for me 
And so we may have started off our journey with Jesus, rejoicing in his love for us, thanking God for his grace. But then when we feel dry and distant from Jesus and we begin to doubt his love, just because our prayers are not being answered in the ways that we want, when this happens, if we're not careful, we enter into those seasons, that doubt, small doubt, can grow into unbelief. Because all along we have misunderstood our relationship with Jesus, just like a merit-based system, just to do good and to expect Jesus to do good for us in return. This is not how a relationship with Jesus Christ works. It's not about how we, have, we feel like we've done our part, and now we expect Jesus to do his part. Our Lord Jesus Christ does not want this kind of transactional relationship with us. And we've been learning how Jesus is seriously committed to us. He enables us. He helps us to understand who he is and his love and his great worth. And so as God shows us his values through his word, as he shows us his love, we will realize sooner or later that something needs to change deep within us. Something about how we value people. Something about our perspective that we may have overlooked. And so in order to apply this first point into our lives, here's life application number one. Consider our recent interaction with others to better see what our values are. In the context of our interactions with people, ask ourselves, do I value the God-given worth of people in my life, especially those who work or serve under me, who are in a lower status below me. In our, in our interactions with Jesus, asking ourselves, do I value my merit and works? Do I see myself bargaining with Jesus to do favors for me? And as we take the time to consider our, our values, how we value, whether it's people, whether it's Jesus, with God's word guiding us, the goal here again, of this kind of reflection, of this kind of application, is to realize how sinful and how broken we are. We might not realize if we don't think about it. To sit down and to realize even more than we understood before, I am so sinful. I'm so broken. I cannot even value people the way that I ought to. But this will be a good thing because only then when we see our brokenness, our sinfulness, only then we will realize how much more God's grace is needed in our lives. How much more we need God to be at work in our lives, in our relationships, in our hearts. So I hope that you can consider these things this week. Let's continue on to the next point. We saw how the centurion was an earthly authority that used his influence to demonstrate his love. Next, we'll see an extraordinary authority who deserves our faith. We know from verse 9 that Jesus marveled. He was in awe. He was in wonder. And it's an interesting concept for, that Jesus marveled. And in Scripture, there are only two situations where Jesus marveled. The first is when Jesus marveled at people's unbelief. When they lacked faith in Jesus and they doubted his power and his authority. And the only other time Jesus marveled here is in this text. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. 
And I pray and hope Jesus won't be marveling at us because of our doubts, because of our unbelief, because of our lack of faith. Rather, we should desire such a faith that makes Jesus marvel. So let's unpack these verses to understand what kind of faith it is that Jesus marvels at. First, it's a faith that understands our unworthiness in light of Jesus' surpassing worth. Take a look at verse 6. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to Jesus. So by now, we should be wondering why the centurion sent elders to ask Jesus to come in the first place and then to send his friends to stop Jesus from coming when he was almost already there. Does the centurion want Jesus to come and heal or not? And this is something that I've been thinking about all week. And, and I think what's happening here is kind of like this. It's kind of like when you meet someone of authority that you respect, but you're just not ready to meet with him or her. Not professionally ready, not mentally ready, not emotionally ready, just not ready. So when I used to work in my undergrad a time as a, in a bio, biochemical research lab, I always needed to be ready to meet with my boss. He was a serious scientist. I respected him a lot. He even graciously gave an opportunity for a junior in undergrad to work for him. But still, I was nervous around him. But at least in the lab, I came dressed properly. My report was prepared from the experiments I needed to run. My assignments were done. And so I was ready to meet with him there. But when I would see my boss in a casual context outside of work, whether it's in a store or restaurant, I wasn't ready. I should have just said hi, but I would often go the, turn the other way, avoid him, because I was nervous and I wasn't ready to meet with him. And so the centurion in this case had a bigger problem with Jesus than I did with my boss. Because the centurion was about to meet with Jesus, an authority he respected, and he desperately needed Jesus to see him because his servant was dying. But he was not worthy to meet the very person who could heal his servant. And the centurion here understood that he was not worthy to meet Jesus at all. Whether it was out in the street or inside his house, anywhere, didn't matter. He was not worthy. So he did not presume to come to Jesus, meaning he did not take this opportunity for granted. He did not deserve meeting Jesus. So he didn't want to just see him as a friend would. That's why he sent Jewish elders who thought were more deserving. He sent his friends who he thought were more deserving than he was. And he knew he was not worthy to have Jesus do anything for him, unlike what the, Jesus, oh, unlike what the Jewish elders claim. He did not even consider himself worthy enough to be standing in Jesus' presence. This was a serious reality that every Jewish person understood from scriptures. They knew that sinful people in history, in the Old Testament, sinful people died because of their sin when standing in the presence of God. Even when we remember back in Luke chapter 5, Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. Peter was a Jewish fisherman. And when he first met Jesus, he also understood that he was a sinner. And he could not stand in Jesus' holy presence. He fell to his knees. He actually was shooing Jesus away from him, saying, get away from me, Jesus, because I am a sinful man. So if a Jewish fisherman understood this, the Jewish elders should have realized it as well. But they didn't. And now even this non-Jewish centurion understood. 
But I do admit, how we approach Jesus, it can be confusing. We just talked about how all of us have been given a God-given worth. We have a God-given worth, and that's by God's glorious grace. But at the same time, we do have a great unworthiness before God. It does seem like a contradiction, but it is a spiritual reality when sinners are in a relationship with a holy God. That reality is that no one deserves to meet with Jesus because all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Only Jesus, as God the Son, meets the standard of holiness. So when, when compared to the righteousness of Christ, even our most righteous works are just like dirty, filthy rags, like spiritual trash before a holy God. Left to ourselves, we cannot solve this problem of sin. Without a Savior, our lives would be like houses that are built without a foundation. And like that house without a foundation that will get destroyed by the floods, so, we, so will we be destroyed under God's wrath when we finally meet Christ face-to-face on trial in heaven's courtroom. But praise God because he has given us a solution. He has given to us a Savior Our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross and resurrected in victory over death, he took upon our sins, upon himself, so that we could wear his pure, holy righteousness like a new, clean robe. Our unworthiness, an exchange for the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. This is the spiritual reality that sinners can actually approach a holy God. That's why we sing these songs, reflecting what seems like to be a contradiction, but it reflects the spiritual reality in our relationship with God. We sing two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid. Where? At the cross, at the cross of Jesus Christ where he died, where our unworthiness was exchanged for the worth of Jesus Christ. And even though we still live in sin, we can cling to Jesus, his righteousness. We can come to Jesus in repentance, in faith, in response to this glorious gospel. For anyone who would come to see their unworthiness in light of Jesus' surpassing worth, that person has one key element of true saving faith. To see our unworthiness in light of Jesus' surpassing worth. Second, the faith that makes Jesus marvel is also one that trusts Jesus at his word and humbly submits to Jesus' supreme authority. Uh, It might sound similar to the first point, but it's worth distinguishing here because we need to see how exactly the centurion understood Jesus' worth. Jesus didn't die on the cross yet at this point in time. So how did the centurion understand his own unworthiness and Jesus' surpassing worth? And we see from verse, uh, verse 8 that the centurion's understanding of Jesus' worth comes from an understanding that Jesus was exercising a greater authority than anything that he had known about. It was a supernatural authority, an extra, extra, extraordinary authority. As an army captain, the centurion had precise understanding about authority because the centurion was a commanding officer 
He had about 100 soldiers in his army unit, and each one of them directly reported to him. But the centurion here says, I am a man also set under authority, meaning that he himself served under authority, a higher authority than his own. He was just one of 60 other officers in the same role in a Roman legion, which was about 6,000 soldiers in total. So here in this set order of authority, he can tell one soldier, go there, and the soldier under him will go wherever there is. He'll say, come, and the soldier will come from wherever he is. He can tell his servant, do this, and it will get done. And in the same way, if his higher-ranking officers told him to do anything, he would also submit to their authority. So the centurion understood how authority works. But no one else that he had ever, met, ever heard about before had the authority and power to heal physical and spiritual illnesses. So the centurion's conclusion is this. Jesus, you are also set un- under authority. I see that, but your rank is high above mine. It is way above me. Actually, it's higher above our entire Roman army, above our entire Roman empire. And so the centurion believed in Jesus' supreme authority, so much so that he understood all Jesus needed to do was say a simple word, and his servant's sickness would obey Jesus' word and leave his servant. And so when the centurion here addressed Jesus as Lord, he was not only saying Jesus had an authority, he was submitting to Jesus' supreme authority. And this is the kind of faith that Jesus marvels at. Just one more point here before we move on. We've been talking about relationship with Jesus and our approach to Jesus. And I was studying this text. I initially thought that the centurion was actually missing out on having a personal relationship with Jesus. Why? Because he personally never met Jesus while he had the chance on earth. But I realized that the centurion had a significant relationship with Jesus in ways that many did not. This is because the centurion understood that spiritual reality, that the worthy cannot relate to the unworthy. So even though the centurion never met Jesus on earth, he understood Jesus' worth, he understood his authority with a greater insight and faith than the crowd of people who claimed to be Jesus' disciples, who were following him around everywhere. He had a significant relationship with Jesus in ways that many did not. The centurion fully believed the truth of what he heard about Jesus, even before meeting him, even before Jesus did what he desperately asked for, even before his servant was healed, this centurion believed. He had faith in Christ. And we know later on that even after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus would ask his own disciples who were with him all the time in his ministry on earth, There was one who could not believe unless he saw the marks of Jesus in his hands, the scars in his hands and on his side. Jesus asked them, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This centurion believed even before meeting Jesus face to face. Even before Jesus did anything that he asked of him. 
for us on this side of history, on this side of the cross, we believe, we know Jesus Christ has died and he rose again, that his grave remains empty. And by faith, we know, we understand unworthy sinners like us who should not be able to approach Jesus. We are able to approach Jesus, coming only by his grace and mercy. The centurion couldn't bring himself into Jesus' presence. He had some more to learn about how to, how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But for us, we know we can come to Jesus, to the one who sits on the throne of God, high above any earthly kingdom, high above any earthly authority. We can come to Jesus as lowly, unworthy sinners, come with a bold confidence, knowing that there's absolutely nothing we can give, nothing that we can bring to Jesus that's of any worth, but knowing that he graciously invites us through his work that he accomplished on the cross, he invites us into a living, personal relationship with him. So will we respond in faith? What else could we give to such an authority like this, to such a love like this, than of our whole lives, our willing obedience and humble submission to Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we live, strive to live by faith in him? For those of us here who have yet to make that decision in trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and as your Lord, I pray that you can see today our unworthiness and, our, and his worth. I pray that as you continue discovering Jesus, who he is and what he has done for you, I pray you'll come to the same conclusion like the centurion and like the members of our church have, that Jesus is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our entire lives. And we will love to help you along in your journey. And we'll see here, even in the final verses, that those who are living in faith are called to help others along into faith in Christ. So this brings us to our last point in verses 9 and 10. That Jesus uses such desperate and dependent faith of his disciples to call others into faith in him. Uh, we first need to catch, try to catch the tension in the air in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, When Jesus heard these things, the words of the centurion through his friends, Jesus marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is probably the most Awkward silence afterwards in the history, in, in Jesus' ministry. He actually, Jesus actually turned to the crowd of people that called him, uh, called themselves disciples. Jewish leaders, religious leaders who knew God's word, who thought they knew how to live for God. He turns to them and saying out loud, commending the centurion for his faith. And not only that, he directly to their face compares them to this Gentile. That's what Jesus means when he says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What is everyone else in that crowd thinking at this point? Why is Jesus commending that centurion? Isn't he unclean? Isn't he sinful? Why is Jesus commending someone who did not even meet him yet? Who hasn't done anything for him yet? 
Why is Jesus commending someone who is not worthy? But Jesus' point here was not to offend his disciples. It was not to condemn them or shame them. See, you don't have any faith. No, he was saying he hasn't seen such faith. The disciples, many of them following, they probably had faith. But for them, this was a teaching moment of Jesus. Those who were just challenged in Luke chapter 6 to live out their faith through their obedience, live out their faith in Christ through their obedience to Christ, he turns to them and says, see this centurion? He lives more out the faith that I have been teaching you about. He says to me, Lord, and lives in a way that fits his profession of faith. He trusts in my word. He humbly submits himself to my authority. So if any disciple was confused with Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6 before, then now Jesus was clarifying to them just a little bit more that this faith of the centurion is more of the faith that Jesus was looking for explaining that this is the kind of faith that he is pleased with, the kind of faith that Jesus will marvel at. So brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us here, all of us who say we are his disciples, all of us who say, yes, Jesus is worthy, who say, yes, he deserves our worship, our allegiance, our loyal service and submission to his will, all of us, all of us who say this, God's word calls us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we know very well that this doesn't mean that we deserve to live or that we are worthy to live or that we will live in a way that will match, uh, that deserves a matching worth from God. No, this means that Jesus Christ and the gospel that he teaches us that saves us, it's so valuable to us. It should be so precious to us in our lives that as we treasure Christ as our surpassing worth, the fruit of that faith, the result of that faith will be a life that reflects his worth. It will be a life that reflects in a manner that reflects the worthiness of Jesus Christ to all those around us. So here we can understand that our relationship with Jesus is not only important for ourselves, but our relationship with Jesus is also important for others. And make sure you catch that. Our re relationship with Jesus is not only important for us, it's important for others, especially those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus. They need to see what faith looks like. As they hear the words of life, they need to see that uh, a life that lives out those words. And Jesus will graciously use our lives of faith to teach and show others what it means to live by faith as his disciples. That will happen in the context of our church with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that Jesus can strengthen the faith of one another as they see our lives of faith lived out. Again, it's not a perfect life. But it's a life that reflects, that understands our unworthiness and reflects Christ's worth. He will also use our lives of faith to teach and show unbelievers who don't know Jesus. And as we share with them Jesus' words, teaching them, going through, studying the Bible with them together, many more will come to believe in Jesus, even though they have not yet seen him. Just like the centurion 
whose desperate and dependent faith as he was as he was interceding on behalf of his servant to Jesus that led to the healing of his dying servant in greater ways we will see the salvation of lost people people who do not know Jesus in our lives and by faith and as we, by faith meaning as we live in faith and as we live out our faith we will see our unbelieving family members, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors who are spiritually dying, we can see them spiritually born again into a new life of faith in Christ together with us. We will be far from living those perfect sinless lives as long as we are on this earth. But may Jesus use our desperate and dependent faith in Christ to call others into faith in him. This is not just a matter of, yeah, I just need to go out and evangelize and share the gospel. No, this is a matter of seeing and treasuring the worthiness of Christ in our lives so that our lives will reflect his worth to all those around us. And so the second way we can apply God's word today is this. In the second life application, consider the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ to better see how he deserves faith from all people. Remember this week, that your relationship with Jesus is important for you indeed, but it's important for other people in your life. And so two areas to consider this is in our faith in Christ. Do I treasure Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross for my sins? Is being a disciple, is being a Christian more than just a decision that I just made, a list of works that I have to do, but in, do I see it as a relationship where I know Christ values and loves me even though I didn't deserve it? And in response, I treasure Christ with my life for what he has accomplished on the cross. Another area is in our gospel witness to consider, do I desperately invite others to see the worth of Christ and boldly pray for their faith? Just like that centurion, are we desperate to see those who are dying around us spiritually, that they need to come to know and believe in Jesus Christ as well. So as we consider these things and try to apply God's word into our lives, into our lives of faith this week, again, remember the one thing. Trust in Jesus, uh, trust in his word and submit to his authority for our Lord Jesus Christ graciously loves the unworthy. Let me pray for us as we close, uh, and then I'll invite Pastor Eric to lead us in response. Jesus Christ, it is 